and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of The Pitch from Kansas City. I am your host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Mr. Brock Wilbur. How is everybody doing? How is everybody doing out there? I feel terrible. I think I have a little bit of food poisoning. Uh, not my favorite. Uh, no one feels good feeling sick in 2020, uh, especially when the virus, uh, which is spiking across Kansas and Missouri right now at an uncontrollable rate, uh, has all the symptoms. It, it, any symptom could be the start of that. Uh, the my, my friend uh, keeps going back to um, thinking that a lack of, of taste is going to be when they know that they've got it. Uh, and so they went to the liquor store recently to get their, mo- their, their peatiest whiskey because uh, they're like, I just need something that like if I'm worried that I can't taste, I need to be able to take take a shot and be like, okay, I either could or couldn't taste that. And if I, I can't taste your peatiest whiskey, then uh, then I know I have to go get a test or go to the hospital. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a little weird to be a little under the weather, uh, as is most of my family. Uh, so yeah, uh, I think a degree of that helped us just um, it helped us be okay with uh, canceling the big uh, get-together family Thanksgiving, just to look around and be like, any one of us could be in a pretty bad spot right now. We needn't put each other all in the same room and maybe just swirl that, <laughs> stir that pot, see what comes out of it. Because, uh, oh God, we don't want to die. Just what a time we're having. Just what a time it is out there. Um, we just got our latest issue of The Pitch off to press. Uh, so that'll be out there on December 1st on stands across the city. Deadline day is always such a fun, uh, weird time. Uh, That part's been a little tricky. Deadline and the days around it are the only times that I absolutely have to be in the office. Mostly, mostly these days it's, it's me and one other person in our, in our wonderful little office. Uh, But around deadline, most of the people have to come in. We have to use our industrial printer. We have to, you know, look at a lot of the pages together. Uh, So with, with things being, bad out there these days with the hospitals being a bit flooded. It's us and, and some of the writers, the designers, some of the interns, and uh, everyone's just real spread out to the point of where it's almost it's almost comical, like people hiding in rooms on opposite sides of the building and then how we pass documents back and forth. I don't know. We managed to pull it off. It, it was also a bit of a bummer because we're, we're putting those protections in place. We had an idea of doing something of like a gift exchange uh, in the middle of December, uh, as we send that magazine off to press. And today we had the discussion and we were all like, does anyone even want to touch anything that somebody else has touched? Like you, you, you worry that you're maybe slightly overreacting to stuff sometimes. And then, uh, then you look at the news, which is us, uh, and, uh, you see numbers, which are facts that I can't alter in any way. And the facts are like, well, this is, uh, this is bad. Uh, people today were in Johnson County uh, protesting uh, the decision to to put a fine in place for businesses that uh, don't have their employees wear masks. And I, I just I'm trying to imagine taking a day off work to go stand in a room without a mask, booing, booing lawmakers as they try to pass laws that are just trying to make sure that more people don't die. We're, we're at an odd time when we're when we're booing. When you when you take time to boo somebody for hoping that they're making your life safer, it, it really feels like we are asking for something. I, I, I'm I'm out of good excuses as to why we why we deserve better. Uh, <laughs> a lot of us are doing our best. Some of us are doing 
pretty good and some of us are just actively screwing the pooch here and it's uh it's a bit bleak to see to see that end of it and be like it is often hard to like watch large gatherings of people uh without masks on uh or or out there doing stupid things and be like why am i working as hard as i'm working because uh yeah all of that work is um is immediately cut out the moment i see this like Whatever I thought I was doing isn't isn't helped. Like the city as a whole is in danger. But then I'm like, okay, well, the chances are I'm probably not dying from it because I'm doing the thing, at least for me. I thought I was doing it for the community, but here we are. Um, so yeah, to be sick on top of that is to sometimes wonder, like it, it, it infection has spread in such a way these days where uh, friends in other cities are, are getting it, even if they've stayed inside this entire time. And they're like, yeah, you know what? It's just... Uh, it's just everywhere now, so maybe the masks don't matter because uh, it didn't it didn't stop anything. It's just it's just everywhere, which is sort of a bleak place to be in, where we're like, well, we had we had a solution. You just had to put a piece of fabric over your mouth and maybe not gather in large groups, and uh, and enough of us ignored that that now we're just like, yeah, actually now we're kind of out of things until uh, until uh, science uh, brings us some sort of uh, cure uh, or, or vaccine. Uh, so between now and then things are going to be bleaker than they've ever been. And that's, uh, that's a weird way to go into the holidays. Anyway, uh, my wife and I are planning on a wonderful Thanksgiving. I'm going to give her her Christmas present, uh, on Thanksgiving day because it is a fun, uh, wild time sink. And I'm just hoping that, um, yeah, there's no need to save it for a month beyond Thanksgiving. There's no spectacle we probably won't be around any other people on christmas so like why not get started having fun with this thing that will allow us to think about something else for a few minutes that's the bleak holiday report that is that is the most positive i can be i'm i'm pretty i feel pretty okay about where we are and uh i i wish the best for everyone uh going into what we're going into um and if you're feeling bad, please stay inside. Please take care of yourself. I I am going to finish recording this and do a gigantic lay, lay down. I'm going to go to sleep so early. Oh, it's it's really important. Um, so today we've got a fun interview with the comedian Brian Regan. Uh, we have next music corner, of course. But first up, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment is going to read a uh, an article we published uh, called My Dinner with Stacy Shaw. Uh, written by Jim Nimmo. Uh, Jim is a photographer with us that started working with us uh, around the time the protests started. Uh, and he's uh, sort of a never-Trumper, right-leaning guy, uh, middle-aged dude uh, who's like, I don't know, I, I want to take pictures of this stuff. I think it's going to be important. And he spent so much time at the protests uh, that it's kind of it kind of radicalized him. And so um, he he's found an unusual friendship uh, with uh, with Stacy Shaw, who is sort of the the leader of our resistance movement, who is standing up for uh, a lot of people who have been wronged by the police in our cities, and has uh, and has made a lot of demands, and has led the creation of an impromptu uh, city that sprung up on the steps of City Hall, uh, where people lived for a couple of weeks uh, in tents and holding events, and they even built a little library. Uh, like a lot was happening there. It's a very complicated, weird thing. And uh, Jim Nimmo, a guy that I don't think would have ever been on the side of this back in normal world, uh, yeah, now now has an, an odd friendship with the person running the resistance. And so this is a piece that he wrote 
about the two of them sitting down for a five-hour dinner uh, with Cajun food and whiskey and conversation about complicated things from complicated sides of the world. Uh, it's 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 something I'm wildly proud of that we've published this year. If 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 only uh, minus all the other context and the things that I find interesting and the fact that it speaks to an audience of people that are like Jim and not like my normal audience, my normal friends, the people I usually have in mind when I'm writing. Um, there's something incredible about it, just that Jim was is is mainly just a photographer uh, and then wrote this gigantic, wonderful feature for us uh, that we we got to work with him on for a while to, to get to its final state. But um, just watching anybody find their voice as a writer is always really inspiring and one of my favorite jobs, one of my favorite parts of the job here in local journalism, just like, okay, uh, yeah, I don't... <laughs> When, when we got started, he was sending me a sentence or two just to say this is what this is what was happening last night. And now now he's the kind of guy turning in something like this. And it's just uh, I don't know. Every part of this is very inspiring to me and I think very exciting. So uh, here is Jason reading Jim Nimmo's piece. My dinner with Stacy Shaw. My dinner with Stacy Shaw. How one never Trumper formed an unlikely friendship amid a year of upheaval by Jim Nimmo. The summer of 2020 will always be one of those times that will be remembered in the same way our grandparents speak of the Great Depression, the summer of 68, or 9-11, depending on your age. We will all have stories to tell our grandchildren, and few will have as many stories to tell as Kansas City Attorney Stacy Shaw, a woman who went to her very first protest on the first day of June 2020 just because her sister wanted to see what it was all about. By the beginning of October, Shaw was living in a tent on the front lawn of City Hall and refusing to leave until protest demands were met. Her evolution from a practicing attorney for a small firm to one of the most visible protest leaders in KC has been a journey of pain and trouble for Shaw. She has been threatened, sat in an Overland Park jail cell singing freedom songs, and had her car broken into twice. Recently I visited her Midtown apartment for a home-cooked Southern-inspired meal and a five-hour conversation that covered a range of topics, systemic racism and why runny eggs go well with salad. To say nothing of learning the ground you can break by leading the interview with, I like whiskey. Before this summer, 37-year-old Stacy Shaw was best known for her local television ads, reminding you of the importance of legal representation for traffic charges. Now she is known as public enemy number one by the local police union vilified by KCPD as a terrorist, and painted as a violent extremist who promotes riots and threatens the families of police on social media. While covering many protests throughout the summer, I have witnessed Shaw's evolution. I wanted to find the real person behind the media's portrayal of her. There has always seemed to be a disconnect between the individual I've observed speaking at protests and various social media accounts of her appearance that materialize afterward. A recent Vice News report showed a back-the-blue rally at police headquarters, where one police supporter was demanding that Shaw be disbarred for leading a mob and trying to incite people to violence. She continued on, asking why this Stacy Shaw character couldn't be more like the lady in the skirt over there in the yellow, who was promising a peaceful counter-protest. The woman in yellow she pointed to actually was Stacy Shaw. A native of Wichita, Shaw grew up in a conservative Catholic home with many military ties. Now she is a practicing Buddhist who chants the names of those killed in KC by police at a Butsudan in her home office. As a child, she originally wanted to be a nun. She graduated from Harris-Stowe State University with a degree in business administration and then graduated magna cum laude from the Thurgood Marshall School of Law in Texas, 
where she was a member of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority. She was also considerably more conservative before this summer, once even advising her sister not to get locks in her hair because it would hurt her job chances. As we stood in her kitchen, dining on the evening's first course of a caprese salad, Shaw talked of her life before KC. She traveled a lot, backpacking through France and 12 other countries experiencing life. A former kitchen and bar employee, she can lecture extensively on salt properties. She has an affinity for black salt, which has more sulfur in it. But her favorite is French salt, which she discovered while visiting an aunt who lives in France. She laughed as she told of the odd looks she received from customs when she returned to the U.S. with eight pounds of butter and French salt in her carry-on luggage. For nine months, she lived in the Virgin Islands while her younger sister, also a lawyer, served a clerkship for a judge. After helping her sister move into a small one-bedroom apartment with no air conditioning in a hip neighborhood, she decided to stay on the island. With little money, she worked at a bar, as a private vegan chef, because they were too poor to afford meat, and a fitness instructor. The apartment was across the street from a church and next door to a strip club. This experience changed her perception of life. She realized while watching tourists come off cruise ships to wander the town that money was not an end-all for her. These tourists work 60-plus hours a week to afford taking 10 days of vacation, spending them on the island paradise she lived on. Said Shaw, it changed how I planned my life. Do I want to have money? Do I want a vacation home? Or do I want to live a life that is blissful? They walked everywhere, living an impoverished existence in paradise. The Virgin Islands were also where she first became aware as an adult of the violent undertone directed against people of color in our society. Fiercely protective of family, Shaw still speaks with rage of the walk home at night when her sister was called a nigger bitch and threatened with robbery to teach her a lesson. Reflecting on that moment, Shaw said, There is a thought that if you do this, you'll be safe. If you do that, nothing bad will happen to you. Now that's not true. America has gone to hell. We used to have this collectivism. We watched out for our neighbor and did what was best for the community in general. Now it's so individualistic. People value themselves over their community. And when you have this individualism, it just devolves. It doesn't matter what people do. It was a realization that carries on in her protest work today. As we moved on to the next course of dinner, a runny egg and kale salad, she told how she originally came to Kansas City because her former husband lived in Wichita, Kansas, and Casey was the closest city to Wichita. She loves Casey because the city gives people a chance and were welcoming to the young lawyer. She had never spent a night in Kansas City before coming here to start her business. She rented a podium at the Super Flea because there was no booth space available for rent, and hung a banner on it that simply said, Stacy Shaw, attorney at law. I fix traffic tickets $99. A self-proclaimed educator of the law for people, she explained that nobody knew how to hire an attorney for traffic tickets. Everyone thought attorneys were really expensive. Back then it was between $75 and $250 for an attorney to fix a ticket. She decided on a median price of $99 and warned her flea market patrons what would happen if they didn't hire a lawyer. That was my strategic advantage. She then began advertising her services on television. The fact that nobody had seen a black woman attorney advertising on TV brought in scores of clients to her fledgling law firm. It was shortly after she hired her first associate for Stacey Shaw and Associates that she realized that racism does not just happen to the poor and uneducated. It also happened to her, an educated professional. While attending a trial in a courtroom north of the river, she sent her young, white male associate in first to see if he was asked to provide his bar card as proof that he was an attorney. It was his first visit to that court and instead of being asked to provide his card as proof, he was waved through by security. However, Shaw was stopped and asked to provide her card. 
It angered her associate, who wanted to make a scene about the discrimination, but Shaw instead made it a teaching moment. This is what it is like. Understand that your clients are black and you're going to be using your privilege for their benefit. This is what they go through. I'm your boss. This is the first time you've ever been here. I've been up here multiple times and this is how I'm treated versus how you're treated. So you have to remember that when you're representing clients that this is what they go through. And you've seen this for yourself. At this point, we moved past the salad courses of dinner and began eating fried okra with hot sauce. Shaw has a wide variety of hot sauces in her home, including a homemade habanero sauce. As the food got spicier, so did our conversation, as it turned to both local and national politics. I asked if she was worried about the criticism that protests create fodder for President Trump's law and order campaign ads. She replied, so what? Trump will use anything including what has already happened to win. No way to change that dynamic. Trump will just be Trump. Trump supporters confuse Shaw because they vote against their own economic interests. A lot of blue-collar jobs are gone, and it's not because of people of color, but because of technology. The situation they are in now is not because of people who look like her, but because Jeff Bezos needs a bigger bottom line. As she points out, people have been pointing blame at black people throughout history. When local politics came up, I asked about her views on Casey Mayor Quinton Lucas, who faces threats of a recall due to his handling of the twin crisis facing KC, racial unrest in the COVID-19 pandemic. I like him personally, and I always want to recognize the humanity in people. It's because I'm Buddhist, so I'm always going to want to see the good in people, but I also understand the gravity of the moment, and we need somebody that we can depend upon. Someone that when you say something, we can take that to the bank. And that's not Lucas right now, said Shaw. Who he is and what his ideology is changes from moment to moment. You can't depend on what he says. I think that's the largest problem with him. He gives so many different answers. Her disappointments with Lucas aside, Shaw does not support the efforts to recall Lucas. It was a move that she originally called for early in the summer when many did not feel the mayor was moving quickly enough on police reform. I don't like the reasons the recall Lucas people are trying to recall him for, because it's all racist. These are people in the Northland who don't think he arrested enough looters. It puts a lot of people, including myself, in a difficult situation. Now if they succeed, then they will just want to put someone else in there who also has a racist agenda. Shaw's demeanor at protests has changed as summer progressed into fall. She originally started attending in the role of a lawyer to protect the rights of protesters. When criticized by family members involved in the military for the flag burned on Westport Road on the 4th of July, Shaw responded to them by saying, That's their constitutional right, and I'm there as a lawyer to protect their rights, not the flag. She was also quick to point out that her protecting the rights of others does not equate with wanting to burn flags personally. I did not burn the flag, she stated emphatically. When discussing the violence at some protests this summer, Shaw spoke about the many different factions that come together at a protest. Some of these factions, especially the younger ones, are prone to vandalism and sometimes violence. Shaw claims that her age actually puts her at a disadvantage in controlling them. I'm the old person and this new movement is a young person's movement, she said. I'm usually at least 10 years older out there than anyone else, at least, and I still want to have an amount of trust with them. Now, if it's something where somebody is going to get hurt, I intervene where somebody is going to get hurt. There was a gray pickup truck when that Jackson statue got spray-painted. This guy had come up in a pickup truck, and everybody was about to jump the guy in the pickup truck. I intervened. But if I see people spray-painting, that's not worth my exercising of influence. You can clean off a statue. I really always reserve if I'm going to interject myself for when someone's going to get hurt. Anything else, she said, I'll tell you all not to do it, but I'm nobody's security guard. I'm not going to be that guy. As the summer progressed, Shaw became more radicalized by what she observed and experienced. As she told me over fried okra, before this summer, I had a much different perspective on police. 
I could see both sides. After this summer, I've been maced in the face, and I was literally just standing there. To arrest and being maced initiated her change from lawyer to activist leader. She became the little general, as one member of the political activist group Black Rainbow described her. That move towards more active leadership in the actions of protesters grew out of one of those arrests that she blames on the lack of discipline on the part of the protesters. As protests went on all summer, they got more violent across the country. In order to continue on, we had to get structure. The police were not prepared for the crowds and would interpret any movement as violence. At the next protest, she started giving instructions. As they followed instructions, the protesters gained confidence. Said Shaw, that confidence reduces the chances of chaos starting. That creates an environment that gets people killed. An added benefit is that if you see people being disciplined, it scares the shit out of people. So agitators behave better and don't look for as many opportunities to create violence. It also freaks out the police to see the protesters acting in unison, she claims. This emphasis on organization was especially evident at a protest in late August, where Shaw led a march to the home of the Overland Park mayor. Before the actual march started, she taught hand and flag symbols to the marchers. She gave instructions on how to contact a lawyer if arrested, and how to obtain bond money from bail organizations. As the march reached the home of the mayor, police intervened and threatened arrest. At this point, Shaw led a small group of protesters who could not afford to be arrested for civil disobedience back to their vehicles. She then returned to the protest, which had been moved by invitation onto the front lawn of one of the mayor's neighbors. There, she gave an educational lecture on the movement before peacefully leading them away. She also had members of Black Rainbow stationed along the way with flashlights to ensure no one tripped over a curb while walking through the streets at night. While reflecting upon that night, over the main course of fried fish and coleslaw, Shaw said, The movement is getting more organized. This fall into the winter, we are going to be doing a lot of training. When we re-emerge in the spring and summer, it will look completely different than it did. We will be marching for systemic change in the infrastructure of things. We're talking about a five-year struggle. What does that look like? Not just a summer, not just 15 weeks, but we're talking people five years into systemic struggle with specific goals for those five years. I don't want to be marching for 30 years. When we get out of the streets, that means we have mission accomplished. The idea of an extended movement that will exist past this year is something that often gets lost in discussions about the Black Lives Movement. Yes, Stacey Shaw wants to abolish the police, but she is also aware that such a move is not something that can instantly be accomplished. While it may take 30 years to reimagine how we can safely self-police our communities, but the decision to work towards this needs to be made now. She is adamant that reinvesting in our communities can lower crime rates far more effectively than any amount of a police presence in those neighborhoods. People are affected more by being poor than being black, but the system is set up to keep black people poor. You don't see black engineers and lawyers doing drive-bys. You don't see affluent black neighborhoods like the Citadel with a high crime rate. You don't see a high crime rate there because people have money. Gun violence is coming from neighborhoods that don't have money, but disproportionately, those people who don't have money are black. I asked if she thought the goals of the Black Lives Matter movement would move forward quicker if groups would work towards more peaceful and less confrontational methods than disturbing quiet neighborhoods or vandalizing police statues. More of a Martin Luther King than a Malcolm X approach. It was here that her frustration with the situation showed. You have to have a Malcolm, Shaw said. America does not respond to positive reinforcement. It's not in the history of America. Our country is only built on the stick. Every single time that there is any movement, it never came cordially. People had to raise hell. People had to die. Many people had to die in this country. Violence is the only thing people respect. 
I do not like graffiti. I do not like destruction. I do not like violence. I do not like it. However, I have to respect the position of the activist on the ground because if they are students of history, they see that America knows no other way. I mean, we can march. We have marched. We have sent in letters. We have sent in emails. We have made phone calls. You say the perception of me since I first started has changed. You first saw me wearing a t-shirt at marches. Then I became more militarized and radicalized because I saw no end to the brutality of the police. There's no end to racism. Every time I think, oh, they're not going to do this, then they do it. Her observation was reinforced in late September when, less than 24 hours after city officials announced plans for a new initiative to reduce crime and improve relations between police and the community, a nine-months pregnant woman was body-slammed by an officer while executing an arrest. Shaw now represents Deja Stallings in her lawsuit against the city. The arrest led to an occupation of the front lawn of City Hall by protesters. It also led to Stacey Shaw's biggest mistake when she spoke at a rally in front of police headquarters in a video that went viral. You don't think we know where all of y'all live? You don't think we know where your children go to school? She said in the video. Because of these comments, Shaw issued an apology that read, On Friday, I made regrettable statements that I in no way intended as a threat. I sincerely apologize for the brief moment that I was not upholding the values of love and transformative justice I have consistently championed. To be clear, I do not endorse nor will I ever tolerate harm to police, families, or children. We all deserve better. This video has become a distraction from the important work of organizers and activists that are on the brink of changing so much in this city and country. I am taking time to focus on self-accountability and how I may be of further service in this historic movement. Shaw explained to me later that she was tired and dehydrated from a day spent at the camp at City Hall and did not realize how easily her words could be perceived as a threat. She admitted she shouldn't have been speaking, as tired as she was, but had ignored her own instincts to sit that particular protest out. I take full accountability for what happened, but it was also used as a hit piece by Brad Lennon, head of the local police union. Backlash from the union, community, cops, retired cops, and others has made Shaw very aware of how dangerous her activism can be. The police union has actively called for her disbarment as an attorney. When asked about the possibility, she said, I don't care if they take my law license. I already know who I am outside being a lawyer. I can go back to being a bartender, which I loved. I will go cook somewhere or clean houses because being a lawyer doesn't define me. Being on TV or the radio or being some sort of big shot doesn't define me. I can still have my place and move up without that license. But there have been other threats more serious in her eyes. She has received multiple death threats enough that she is now always accompanied on marches by a military vet who acts as her security. She spoke bluntly on the risk. It's why I operate the way I do now, because I don't know. Somebody could put a bullet in my head by this time tomorrow. But I know that as long as I am here, I'm going to go full force as long as I can, because I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow. I've had conversations with my family. I might get hurt. I might go to prison. I might die, and you're going to have to be okay with that. Her sister recently purchased the burial plot next to her mom, a grim reminder of the seriousness of the threats against her. These threats have also spurred the Black Rainbow members to train themselves in self-defense tactics, as well as have an on-site security team for events. Said Shaw, If you come to a protest and start tripping, you might get your ass beat. We want people to know that. A lot of people think we are just ragtag kids, but no, we are getting to the point that people need to know that we are not playing around and we're not afraid. This is not going to be another Kenosha. We are actively training to disarm long guns, pistols, knives, baseball bats. If you come with a firearm and we have to disarm you, you're getting your arm broken. That's it. We are going to disarm you by force. We are not doing anything illegal, but there are people who are trying to harm us and we are not going down without a fight. 
The movement that Stacey Shaw stumbled into early this summer has led her on a strange and transitional path. The child who wanted to be a nun is now literally fighting City Hall, to the annoyance of many. But the opinions of others do not bother her. Her experiences this summer have led her to the place where she bluntly said over a final dessert course of cake topped with banana cream, I'm going to say what I think. I can say what I think, and if people like it, great. And if not, doesn't bother me. And now, ladies and gentlemen, your favorite part of the show as always, because it doesn't involve me, welcome to Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Lawrence musician Max Indeveri has put out several singles this year, but his latest, Don't You Stay, is a perfect R&B slow jam. The musician describes it as an indie soul ballad about fading love and infidelity, but despite its wistfully sad lyrics, it's an intensely catchy song as well. The undeniable bassline which grooves throughout the entire track is hypnotic, and Isabella Kloster's contralto guest feature nicely complements Indeveri's lead. We featured the video in the most recent Cine Local roundup, and you'd do well to check it out as it's just as visually compelling as the song itself. You can find more info about Max Indeveri at his website, maxindeverimusic.wixsite.com slash music. Here's Don't You Stay. Like a dying star But that cosmic radiation Well, it, it don't go far And I know you were young before Took the glimmer out your head And it's such a shame to see young eyes cry So don't you, don't you, don't you stay I got shit to do Everybody, everybody now 
Last up today, we have a comedian, Brian Regan, on the show. Yeah, this is an interview that we did uh, because Brian is headed to Kansas City. He's doing a weekend of shows November 30th through December 2nd at the KC Improv. Uh, so got to talk to him. Uh, he's one of the biggest names in comedy. as a couple of gigantic Netflix specials with more on the way. Uh, everybody's favorite clean, apolitical comedian. Uh, and so we had a conversation about... How do you do that now? How uh, how are you apolitical in an era where everything is so politicized? What is it like to get back into touring during COVID? Uh, what kind of safety precautions are there? Because, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm not ready to go back into any sort of live music event venue anytime soon. But um, what what makes him feel safe and what makes him feel like the audience is safe? It's a, it's a fun, interesting convo we have here. So here is Brian Regan. Um. How are you holding up? <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. I've, uh... what, what is the dumbest purchase that you've made during quarantine? <laughs> uh, wow. I, I've spent money on so many stupid things just because I'm sitting here alone and looking at Amazon some nights with a beer in me. So, yeah, I, <laughs> I want to know what's, what somebody with Brian Regan money uh, buys when, <laughs> when well, they're stuck alone. <laughs> I wish I could say white tigers. But uh, <laughs> I live here in Las Vegas, and it seems like you're supposed to have white tigers when you live in Las Vegas, but I haven't quite turned that corner yet. <laughs> I'm still sans white tigers. So uh, to kick it off, we're, we're talking today because uh, you are uh, coming to Kansas City to perform at the end of the month. Um, has this been the longest period you've done in, your, in decades of your career without doing a live show? <laughs> Yes, yes. This is the, uh, I mean, I've, I've been doing shows for a couple of months now, but. Um, I, I guess just before that, there was sort of a forever blackout and, and now things are working their way back. <laughs> well, I'm doing comedy clubs. I'm doing, you know, every state is a little different. You know, I mean, uh, for the most part, regular theaters are not open yet, but some theaters are open with social distancing a lot of comedy clubs around the country are open, but with social distancing, tables are farther apart than they would be, than they normally would be. 
I've been doing outdoor venues. I've done a couple of drive-in movie theaters. Um, so I've been performing, but not in the way that I was performing prior to COVID. Is, does that make it, it, it feels like it, it must be like a, an athlete not having access to the normal gym equipment uh, to, to be trying to develop your material in, in a weird vacuum or at least in a, in a weird alternate space. Is that, is that led to you having interesting different material than you normally would or, or are you working the way that you, you would traditionally work and just uh, see, seeing how things develop? Well, I was working towards a Netflix special, which I shot um, at the end of October. So I was just trying to do the material I would normally do if there was not a pandemic. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was working towards a special that, you know, I want people to enjoy 20 years from now. So I didn't want it to be all about this particular time. Plus, many comics are covering all of this territory, you know, the COVID stuff. So, uh, but to answer your question with the weird venues, it has been strange. Uh, the strangest of all was um, I've done two drive-in movie theaters and the first of the two, <laughs> I almost heard literally nothing. <laughs> I was, was going to say, it must, it must be weird to have uh, people honking their horns by way of laughter, but I, I imagine that dead silence is much weirder. <laughs> well, they actually, on the big screen, ask people as a courtesy not to honk their horns and not to flash their lights because <laughs> that can be problematic too. But um, I thought I would hear laughter instead. So all that created was a big, a big blob of nothingness. So... Um, <laughs> I was on stage in front of a bunch of cars, <laughs> just kind of doing my act. It felt like I was doing comedy in a vacuum. It was very bizarre. Um, I could hear very muted, distant laughs, but um, it was quite challenging. I, uh, I suppose with the windows up, it's like a, an entire audience just sort of laughing into a pillow. And you're like, I think I hear something, but. <laughs> yes, yeah. My biggest laugh sounded like this. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're booking a tour here and and you're you're out on the road what what sort of what sort of work do you put in or does your team put in to to sort of vet these venues to make sure everything's safe or, or do you trust that you know everyone's going to have your audience's safety at heart oh <laughs> uh, we kind of trust that the venues are following the proper protocols um, I've found every place I've performed at that people are taking it seriously. You know, um, comedy clubs are like at half capacity. You know, they see the tables are farther apart than they would be. Um, oftentimes people still wear masks while they're at their uh, tables. Not always, you know, if everybody at the table knows each other, um, I guess they don't need to wear masks. And um, the comedians are usually pretty far away from the actual audience members. You know, oftentimes they don't seat the very front tables. So, um, you know, every place is a little bit different, but I, I, I haven't found any venue yet that doesn't care. 
you know, they, they all care and they all take precautions. Maybe some take bigger precautions than others, but they all take precautions. Are you, uh, are you bringing your own microphone to each one? Just uh, making sure that no one else has, uh, has touched it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't go quite that far with it. It's um, some of the places I've performed at each comedian uses a different microphone. You know, they have like uh if there are three comedians on stage, there are three mic stands with three microphones. Right. But, but not every club does that, you know? So then you go someplace else and the comedians use the same microphone. So it's, it's really, um, you know, it isn't like there are f- hard, fast rules that everybody's um, adhering to. It's like, everybody's just kind of doing it the best they can. How, how is this, uh, how has this been, how has this impacted you sort of fiscally? Because you're, you're such a pure comedian that you really like live like so clearly fully off of, off of touring versus being somebody that has like a bunch of TV money to fall back on or, or is, is doing side projects like that. Like has, has, has this year been difficult for, for making up for that or is it, is it still working out? Okay. (laughs) Um, well, I'm, you know, on the fortunate side of the tracks. I don't know if anybody's ever used that expression before. It's a new one, and I think people will understand it. (laughs) (laughs) I'd hate to be on the other side of the tracks. I'm on the fortunate (laughs) side of the tracks. Um, You know, but that doesn't mean that, you know, it hasn't uh, been noticeable, you know. Um, What I'm doing now isn't nearly what I'm used to doing as far as the financial side of things, I'm doing it now more for the love of doing comedy. Uh um, It's more of like a, I don't know. I mean, uh, breaking even kind of thing, you know, being able to (laughs) take care of the people that work with me and that sort of thing and out being able to get a couple of laughs, you know? So um, yeah, I mean, it's not like it was, prior to covid that's for sure what what is your personal philosophy on what makes a good joke or or, or more specifically what makes a good brian regan joke <laughs> um well i've always said that a a laugh <clears throat> when somebody laughs at something they are internalizing the message as a truth I'm getting very philosophical here. <laughs> um, you know, when you laugh at something, you know, like a group of people get together and they laugh at something, you're all agreeing that that is a true thing. And when you laugh with something, laugh laugh with someone, you're also agreeing that that's a true thing. And so it's, uh, laughter is powerful. And so it's a way of communicating, you know, like I like to feel if I share something on stage, it's some from some quirky place in my mind where I've made an observation or thought of something. And when you get a room full of people laughing at it, they're, they're agreeing with you about that particular point of view. (laughs) I, I know it sounds very scientific, but I believe comedy is kind of scientific. And it, it, it seems that, yeah, it, it seems like you always must be working the math on this because you, you do such an excellent job of, of always remaining apolitical in your material, but I, 
I, I guess I'm just, I, I'm so fascinated as to how, how do you maintain that in an era where every small detail of American life has found a way to be politicized? It's challenging. And I do bump up against the edges, you know, especially lately, I'm choosing some topics that might surprise some people. Uh, <laughs> not, not a lot, but, um, you know, I do venture into um, certain areas that people might go, huh, I didn't expect him to be talking about this. Like I have a, a stuff about crime. I have some material about guns and assault weapons, but I try to do the kinds of jokes that both sides would laugh at, you know, um, but it's tricky. What, just bringing up a subject can bump somebody, you know what I mean? Right. I'm sure there's somebody out there that goes, you know, why are you talking about assault weapons? You know, um, people get hurt by these things, you know? So it's like, it's impossible to, to speak without possibly hurting someone's feelings, you know? So I can't overly worry about it. Is it ever difficult for you to, uh, to take your personal convictions and, and, and put them, put them in that place? Like I met a, a, I watch your material and sometimes I think like, I'm sure he feels a, a way about this. Uh, yeah. So is it, is it just that you put that aside in, in service of finding the truth? The, the universal truth that both sides can agree on or or do you ever wish that you could do more of of sharing who you are or is that would that would that not accomplish the goal of being funny to everyone that's a very good question and it's something that i uh i i don't want to say I grapple with it but i that i consider all the time you know it's uh Clearly, there are comedians out there who make their positions clear about things through their comedy. And I, I'm a freedom of, freedom of speech person. I completely support somebody who wants to do that. Mm. The, kinds of, the kind of thing that I like to do <clears throat> on stage is more like everyday stuff. You know, I mean, there's dividing kind of comedy and there's unifying kind of comedy and I tend to enjoy trying to find things that can unify people through humor um and so that's those are the kind of jokes I tend to gravitate towards it's like you know I like to hit on something that a lot of people would laugh at regardless of what their point of view is you know um like the gun thing is a tricky one for me. You know, I, I talk about how uh, um, I never understood the difference between an assault weapon and a non-assault weapon. And anytime somebody explains the difference on TV, I'm always more confused <laughs> at the end of the explanation. And then I just do this guy talking about all these crazy guns and <laughs> he's trying to explain the difference, but the way he explains it is so confusing that I don't know what he's talking about. And I'd like to think that it doesn't matter what side you're on. You, you can still laugh at that. You could be pro gun and laugh at that. You could be anti gun and laugh at that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I try to do those kind of jokes that um, 
it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, you're, you're still going to get into it, I hope. What has been, uh, if, if you have one, uh, a favorite performance experience in the, the Kansas City, Missouri area? Hmm. Uh, I believe it was in Kansas City. I'm not 100% sure, but I was performing, I think, at the, I don't want to say the theater because I don't want to get somebody in trouble, but that's fine. <laughs> I was, I'm almost positive it was in Kansas City, but there was a guy, like a stage worker, who just walked behind me on stage in the middle of the show to get from one side to the other. Like, I guess there was no back way. There was no, you know, usually there's room behind a curtain to walk from one side to the other. And after the show, I had some friends there who said, what was the deal with the guy walking behind you during the show? I said, what guy? I said, a stage <laughs> worker just walked behind you from one side of the theater to the other in the middle of your show. And that to me is still like the most, one of the most bizarre things that's ever happened to me. Like <laughs> you'd think a guy would know this is show business. You don't, you don't walk, you don't walk behind a guy in the middle of his performance, but I guess he needed to get his screwdriver <laughs> uh, that is the casual midwestern attitude that we aim to cultivate here <laughs> it was a head scratcher um, for sure yeah. what is it like to be one of the uh on the very very short list of of the biggest names in comedy uh in the world right now that have sort of multi-special deals with netflix which seems to be the the new pinnacle like it's it's you and a, and a very short list of other people right now. Is, is that exciting? Is that a good referendum on, on where your career is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, believe me, I'm quite flattered you know, <laughs> to, to have gotten to a, a certain place, if you will, in comedy. And, um, you know, I was uh, very happy when Netflix offered me the two special deal. Um, the one I just shot is the second of the two. And, uh, you know, I think Chappelle, Seinfeld, you know, those are the kind of names that they normally give them to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I kind of know where I'm at. You know, it's like I, I feel like I have a pretty good stature within the comedy world, but I know I'm not huge like a lot of these people, you know, like I have my... I never know how to say niche or niche. I don't know how you say that word. But anyway, <laughs> I have a niche following. Um, it's big enough for me to have a nice career, but you know, um, I never went super wide. You know what I mean? Like everybody knows who Seinfeld is. Everybody knows who, you know, uh, Dave Chappelle is. But you got to be kind of into what I do to know who I am, and uh, in a way, that's kind of cool. You know, like I like that people who come out to see me know who, what I do comedically and that's why they're there, you know. I want to tell you that I think everyone knows who you are, but I can tell that you uh, don't love the praise of being asked about what it's like to be the best of the best right now. Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to, to do comedy and to, you know, get some laughs and have some people like it. What was what was the last normal show you did before we slid into this year? Do, do you have a, a fun, positive memory of, of what that was before the drop-off? I'm going to look at my calendar. That's a good question. 
I know I canceled Florida shows. Those are the first shows that I canceled. Let me go back to my trusty. Uh, Let's see. Huh. I believe my last show was in Chico, California. And then I was off. <laughs> I was off the last two weeks in February, and then early March was when I was supposed to go back out, and that's when the world fell apart. So, uh, yeah, if you're going to have a last show, I always recommend that you make it in that you do it in Chico, California. I didn't <laughs> even realize that was my last show. So there you go. Uh, finally, I just want to ask, what's What's the thing that you've done for your mental health to, to stay cool and above it through, uh, through pandemic time? Uh, I think I'm just kind of doing what everybody's doing. You know, I, I didn't realize how much I enjoyed doing nothing. You know, <laughs> I think a lot of people always in the back of their head go, if only I had the time, I would like, you know, reorganize my garage or I would, uh, you know, uh, read all these books that I haven't had a chance to do. And, you know, and I had all that time and I still didn't do those things. It's like, I'm perfectly content sitting on a couch with a pillow on my lap, watching some television or uh, putting my head on that pillow and taking a nap, you know? So doing nothing is thrilling for me. <laughs> That's that is a wonderful philosophy. Brian, thank you so much for your time today and good luck out on the road. All right, man. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that has been Streetwise from The Pitch. I've been your host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Brock Wilbur. Uh, please follow what we're doing at thepitchkc.com. Please consider becoming a member, uh, supporting what we do. Toss a couple of bucks our way. Local journalism is very, very important. And me being employed is very, very important, too. Perhaps even more important uh, than the city. Let's... Uh, Let's keep our priorities in line. Uh, I'm online at Brock Wilbur on Twitter and most other places. Send me an email at any point, uh, Brock at the pitchkc.com if you have story ideas, if you have feedback, um, or uh, apparently, according to my inbox, if you just want to rant about the Illuminati. Uh, I'm here for everyone. Uh, I might not get back to you if you're emailing me multiple times a day about QAnon and the Illuminati, but say lovey. Um, pitch in, we'll make it through. Thank you so much for listening.